You're listening to The Right Process, a podcast in which one writer tells the story of creating one work from concept to completion. I'm your host, Charlie Jensen. The Right Process is brought to you by the Writer's Program at UCLA Extension, helping you reach your writing goals one page at a time. Enroll now at uclaextension.edu. Hi, my name is May Respicio, and my book is called The House That Lou Built. May Respicio is the author of the middle grade novel The House That Lou Built and Beach Season, slated for release in 2020, both from Random House Kids and Wendy Lamb Books. May's writing has appeared in Pregnancy Magazine, Working Mother Magazine, Red Tricycle, Pottery Barn, SF Gate, and other publications and anthologies. The House That Lou Built centers on a 12-year-old girl named Lou who has the ultimate summer DIY project. Lou shares a room with her mom in her grandmother's house in San Francisco and longs for a place of her own to escape their lovable but large Filipino family. She plans to build a tiny house on land she inherited, and even though it's not so easy, she won't give up on her dream. Her friends and family won't either. This heartwarming coming-of-age story explores culture and family, forgiveness and friendship, and what makes a house a true home. I had a lot of different inspiration for this book, I think, and I think it might help me to give a little context to how I came to writing it and what my background was in writing, but I I spent a lot of years learning how to write. I sort of did my own sort of DIY MFA where I was taking classes in the writer's program and which also led to lots of opportunities. I did a Pen Emerging Voices fellowship program. Um, I did something similar with East West Players where I was writing one acts and learning about dialogue and these things were being read on stage. So I had this really wonderful few years of learning how to develop my craft and in writing, learning how to write fiction. Um, But then I became a mom and I just couldn't figure out how to (laughs) balance working and writing and, you know, being a full-time mom. So I actually spent many years not writing or trying to write a novel. Recently, this was a few years ago now, I decided, oh yeah, I had spent all these years trying to learn how to write a book. I want to go back to it. I invested all this time. I I didn't want any of that to go to waste. And so my kids were a little bit older and I thought, I'm going to write a book. (laughs) I had no idea what that meant. You know, one thing that really struck me is, especially having kids, and we we read a ton at home. My kids are huge bookworms. Um, Growing up, I never had books where I saw my story or myself as a Filipino-American reflected in those books. Even through my 20s, I just could never find a book where there was a Filipino protagonist, where there was a Filipino culture. And it became even more apparent when I had kids because there were just where there were no stories where they could recognize themselves. You want kids to have mirrors when they're reading books and they they just had none of that. I think you know thankfully things are changing. There's a lot of discourse in the kidlit community about what it means to have um, diverse representation, but there just wasn't a lot of that for a long time. So I thought I'm going to write a book for my kids because I want them to be able to go to their favorite independent bookstore and pick up a book and recognize their family in it. I decided I wanted a female protagonist, and I knew I wanted her to go on some kind of journey of self-discovery, you know, trying to figure out who she is, what her place is in her own little world and community. I wanted it to have some tear-jerking moments. You know, I was just kind of thinking about, well, what do I want to learn more about? What do I want to write about? I'm a huge HGTV junkie. (laughs) Like, I can marathon those shows 
for days and be so happy just, you know, watching people fix up houses. Um, my husband and I, when we lived in Los Angeles, we spent some time working on a fixer-upper. I, like, learned how to use this big orbital sander, and we refinished our own floors, and I was at the Home Depot taking classes in tiling and grouting, and so I had been reading a little bit about tiny homes and sort of the philosophy philosophy behind why some people want to live in a tiny house. You know, it's not about the things in your home. It, it turns into the experiences when you are intentionally living in such a small space. Those things converge, and I thought, I'm going to write a book about a girl who builds a tiny house. And it seemed really cool to me because it's this huge dream that seems very unattainable. You know, a girl, a kid, a girl physically building a house. And then the more I thought about what a house can symbolize to me, you know, a girl could build this house and it somehow it starts to parallel her building herself up, you know, the, her confidence, finding her place in the world. And I wanted to make sure that there were no other books out there, um, either YA or middle grade, that had a tiny house at its premise or at its core. And I didn't find anything. So I'm not one to just jump into writing something. I tend to try to plan. And I think part of it is because my time feels so limited as a working mom and having young kids. It's like any spare time I have that's devoted to writing, I have to use it wisely. Otherwise, you know, things just fall apart because I just have so much on my plate. After that sort of planning stage, that's when I moved to the outlining stage. And I'm not a huge plotter. I've never been. I'm more of a pantser, just flying by the seat of my pants sort of writer. But I did brainstorm the few key things that I wanted to happen in the book. Like I definitely knew what my beginning was. I knew what my I wanted the ending to be. I had certain key moments that I knew needed to happen in the book, sort of turning point, point moments that change my character's journey. So I look a lot at the why behind something is happening and not in a way where you're dumping big buckets of exposition into the story, but where you're looking at the origin and what's emotionally driving the characters. And I also had, you know, I had brainstormed some internal goals as well. You know, why is she doing this? What's the emotional push? It took me a little over a year to write the first full draft. And I wasn't writing full time. I mean, I feel like if you have a goal of writing, and I hear and I read this a lot from so many different writing teachers and authors, is that you want to treat it like a job. You really want to sit down and show up every day. So the way I wrote this was literally a few minutes at a time. So sometimes it would be 10 minutes, you know, waiting for my son at preschool pickup. Or sometimes it would be, I would be in my office at work, I would close the door and not answer it, and I would write for 20 minutes. And often, and this is still sort of my writing process now, is I write in the middle of the night, and it's perfect that my kids are in bed, it's quiet, it's dark out, I feel like that I'm the only person up doing something, I would be really pointed in trying to figure out, well, what can I do with this five minutes? I can figure out a story problem so that when I go to write the book tomorrow, I will be ready to go. Or I could even just, you know, I always had a draft of my book handy, like on my phone. So sometimes I might look at a scene, I might copy and paste it into, you know, my post-it note on my phone and actually try and uh, revise a few sentences. So you can actually do a lot in just a few minutes a day. And that was one thing that really I surprised myself trying to figure out a balance of being a working mom that you, you really can accomplish something in just a little bit at a time. Yeah, it took me maybe about a year of writing this way. And then I thought, 
oh, I think I have something. It had a beginning, it had a middle, it had an end. It had something at stake. It had this girl following this big dream. And that was the point where I thought, well, I took it this far. Let me see what I can do in terms of revising. I spent a lot of time reading middle grade novels to try and figure out what works and what worked about this voice. Voice is really important because it's what you're first introduced to and what keeps you going. And the reason why you want to read is because you are hooked on somebody's voice. So I spent a lot of time listening to my nieces. I mean, they're older now, but they were, you know, 11, 12 at the time, trying to hear their vernacular and trying to figure out how they speak. You know, sometimes I would throw in certain phrases and I would run it by them and they'd say, oh, no, 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 auntie, people don't say that anymore. Kids don't say that. You sound like an old person trying to write this book. But I I also think voice has just a lot to do about opinions and attitudes. And at that time, I also gave it to a couple of my trusted writer friends, you know, people who have been critique partners over the years who know my work really well. And I said, you know, can you please read this? I don't need line edits. I want to know bigger picture stuff, like what's working, what do you want less of, what do you want more of, what makes sense, what doesn't make sense, do you know what's at stake, can you tell me what's at stake? I ask that question a lot because I always want something to be at stake for there to be some tension in the book. One thing I've learned over the years is how to take the notes that resonate with you and really use those, but to take the notes that don't work for you and just totally disregard them and not feel bad and not feel offended and not take it personally. I think it's a good thing to get to a point in your writing when you can recognize in your work what works for you and what doesn't. When we moved from Los Angeles to the Bay Area and suddenly I had lost all of my in-person writer friends, I thought, I got to have to meet some writer friends because I wanted to talk to people about writing and to exchange pages in person. I don't like doing that online. It's helpful for me to meet people face to face and, you know, just to find a community of writers. But it's a little like dating, right? Because you might meet someone and sure they're a perfectly nice, nice person, but you get their notes and you're like, oh my God, you just do not understand what you read. But I also knew myself and my writing well enough to know like, oh, this is sorry, this isn't going to work out. I don't have time to waste. I don't want to exchange pages because of whatever reasons. It takes work to get to know a writer, to understand how to critique their work in a very constructive way and how to take their critiques of your work and to really integrate those into your own writing. I think when you find those people, you want to stick with them and really try to hold on to that relationship. Because what's great too is as you go throughout the years, they get to know your work. They, They can call out your weaknesses because they know your work just as well as you do, which is a cool point to reach. And so that was probably over a year, like almost a year and a half. And then I thought, oh, it's ready. I'm just, there's nothing more I can do with it on my own. That's it. I can't fix it anymore. I'm done looking at it. I feel like I revised it to the best that I could. And that's when I thought, okay, let me figure out what to do with it next, which meant finding an agent. In the same way that I wrote the book, I spent a lot of time brainstorming on paper and trying to figure out what my road or what my path might be. I spent a good several weeks just researching agents who I thought might want to represent a book like mine. I mean, there's so many resources resources online at this point. You can There are websites called man, the Manuscript Wishlist website or something like that where you can go on and you can look at these lists of agents and see what they're accepting or what kinds, what their manuscript wish list is, what kinds of 
books they're looking for. And I went on their websites to read their submission guidelines to figure out what they were accepting. I looked up who their clients were to figure out what kinds of writers they represented, even looking up those clients to figure out, to find if they had articles or interviews where they had mentioned their agents, just to, I mean, there's only so much you can get a feel for when it comes to reading about someone, but you can get a little bit of a sense of what their experience is, what kinds of authors they work with, you know, how they are regarded in the industry. And finally, I had called a list of my 10 superstar people. And there was also something I joined as well. It was the Publishers Marketplace, I think. So, you know, a trade publication. And they've got a paid version on their website where you can pay whatever the fee is to join. And then you can actually look up stats of agents. You can see who, which houses they've sold to, which editors, you know, how many middle grade novels they've sold, sort of what they've sold recently. And it's not a thousand times accurate, but it gives you a lot of information. And, you know, I hit send on my email and emailed it to the 10 and then just waited. And actually, the very next day, I heard back from a big-time kid-lit agent, and it was just one line, and I totally remember it said, please send me the full. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> I was so excited. I remember I was at lunch with my friends, and I looked down at my phone, and they're like, what are you grinning at? What just happened? And so, and they didn't even know that I had written a book at that point. But um, so from there... I actually heard back from all of the agents except for one, and they had all requested more pages. And so from there, it's a waiting game. But I actually had a really quick experience where literally a few days after sending it out, I had the first agent contact me and say, oh, let's schedule a call. And that is code for I want to represent you. And I actually didn't really know that. But she called me, and we had this great conversation, and it ended with, yeah, I would love to represent your book. And so I learned also, which was new to me, what happens at that point is if you get an offer of rep and there are other agents who still have your pages or maybe they haven't even requested anything yet, you can go out to the rest of the agents and say, I have this offer on the table. Are you still interested? And so that kind of boosts your manuscript for a lot of agents. They, they think, oh, somebody else is interested. I'm going to take a look and see what this is, and let me see if I want to throw my hat into the ring. And I did phone calls with all of these agents, and they were all just tremendous and lovely people, and they all seemed to know what they were doing, and they had all worked with, you know, big clients and houses. And, like, on the business end of things, I just thought, oh, any one of these people who's interested could sell this book. So at that point, I had to really look at maybe more their personalities, like their style, what fit with me. You know, I have some friends who they want an agent where they can call the agent and cry because they're, you know, they're feeling emotional about something and they just need somebody to vent with. But I don't really need that in my agent because I have other, you know, I can do that with other friends in my life. I just really wanted an agent who I thought could be with me for the long haul and who could be really professional. Some agents are wonderfully editorial, which was one thing that really struck me when I had this phone, my phone call with my agent was, oh, she knows the business from in and out. She worked as an editor. She knows the creative end of things. And when we had our call, she kind of gave me a few very general notes of these are the things I think your book still needs for me to be able to sell it. And that was one of the things, too, that 
helped me decide to go with this particular agent. Her name is Sarah Davis. She was an editor for a long time, you know, for a big publishing house before she became an agent. So she had this editorial background where I thought, oh, she's, this is probably someone who can help me learn more about my writing. I mean, my goal throughout all this has always been like how to strengthen my craft, how to keep developing it so that I can become a stronger writer. After I signed with Sarah, what happened was I actually worked with her to revise the book again. (laughs) It was like never ending. It's just revise, revise, revise. So we spent a good, I don't know, I think it was like a couple of months where she gave me this long editorial letter in the same way that an editor would of things that she thought the book still needed. And same thing, just like with my critique partner friends, I used the notes that resonated with me and the ones that didn't, I I just didn't pay attention to those. And so we both felt really confident in the book at that point. And so she said, I'm going to send it out. (laughs) What for us, what that meant was my agent spent some time on her end planning and coming up with a list of houses and editors that she would go to, that she would take my novel to. And then for me, it was just a waiting game. So whatever happens, it's kind of out of your control because you did your job and now you let your agent do her job. Maybe after a week or two, we started hearing back, oh, you know, I'm really sorry, this is not for me. And most of those rejections were actually very thoughtful. A lot of them had comments of like why they didn't connect with the character or what didn't do it for them. And then we started hearing they may take it to acquisitions, they're really interested. Or this editor, she sent me a note saying, oh, you know, I'm going to take some time to read this because I, you know, I think I might kind of be interested in this story. So it looked like the book was going to acquisitions at a house. Acquisitions, that's the big meaning that an editorial team has to decide whether or not they will acquire a book. And oftentimes it's not just an editor. It's a business decision. So they bring in the marketing team and the numbers people to decide, do we want to spend money on this book? And then when that happened... (laughs) Uh, We heard from Random House Kids and a woman named Wendy Lamb, who is my editor now, and Wendy offered a preempt on the book. And a preempt, and I'm going to try to explain this, but I don't know if I've explained it correctly. So a preempt is, let's say your, your book is out with, whatever, 10, 15 editors or publishers, and the preempt is... It's as if a publisher is saying, this is my best and final offer. Take it or leave it. But if you take it, you can't see what all these other publishing houses are going to do. You have to take it, and that's it. And then not know what might happen with other publishing houses. I mean, maybe those publishers would have offered more money or a better deal or maybe, you know, a three-book deal instead of a one-book deal or whatever, or take the preempt and not even, you know, deal with the other people anymore. Wendy Lamb has her own imprint with Random House Children's Books, and Wendy is someone who is hugely respected in the kidlit world, and I was actually floored that she was interested in the book. I was like, what is going on? Why does she want to buy my book? Wendy has worked with some of my favorite kidlit authors at varying points in their careers. So she has worked with people like Jacqueline Woodson, Um, Wendy's published a ton of Newbery winning books. So she published uh, When You Reach Me, which won the Newbery that was written by Rebecca Stead. She published Christopher Paul Curtis, who also another big Newbery, you know, writing writer of classic middle grade 
fiction. He wrote Bud Not Buddy and The Watsons Go to Birmingham. So she's, she's worked with all these amazing people I hugely admire. And my agent said, you know, if you decide to take a preempt from Wendy, that's definitely making a statement about the type of book that you want this to be or the type of book that it could be. Um, and I remember she said, you know, she carries a lot of gravitas in the world of kid lit. And I thought I could really learn something from someone like that who is so seasoned and who has worked with all these amazing books. And I thought I can't not work with someone like her because what an incredible learning experience that would be to have her edit my book and to learn from her. And I feel like this is where the writer's program in me always comes in is is I'm definitely a lifelong learner. I'm always trying to figure out how to keep developing the craft, my craft, and how to keep learning. So I thought, oh, she's going to teach me how to become a better writer, or hopefully the goal is to become a better writer out of this whole process. So we took the preempt, and this was back in 2016, and the book comes out this June, so about two years later. And so, yeah, it's been, um, I have no regrets about taking that offer and seeing like where else the book could have landed because it's just been a really incredible experience working with her and editing, editing the book and learning more about the business end of things. And working with Wendy Lamb, I remember before I had my first official phone call with her, I was terrified. I was so intimidated by who this big publishing person was and the types of books she's published and the authors she's worked with. But then she got on the phone and she she was and she is the loveliest person, very warm, very easy. And I guess I don't know what I was expecting. She also has a wonderful assistant editor uh, I work with and she works with, her name is Dana Carey. And both of them have been so thoughtful in how they read the book and how they give notes and in sort of shepherding me through the process. Although she did say at one point, she said, you know, of any of my debut authors, you ask the most questions or something like that. So I was like, oh my God, I'm asking too many questions. But no, it's been really, it's been an amazing experience and has, of anything I've done, and I've loved all of the classes I've taken in the past and the teachers I've worked with and the mentors I've made throughout this journey, but this has felt most like the master class to me to work with someone at her level from start to finish on a book and to figure out what that means in writing for kids um, has been just a really fun and cool experience. So I feel like I, I have definitely come out of the experience as a stronger writer. I mean, I feel like I th- there's still so much to learn. But one thing, you know, writing for kids is you really have to nail that voice, which is a little bit different than in writing for, as we call them in my house, grown-ups. So she's really taught me how to dig deep, you know, sometimes even going back to my old 12-year-old reader self, you know, with my face in my books, like, what did that mean? What is, how does that, how do you apply that to your writing? And how do you find the magic behind those words? Because, you know, young readers, they're, they're their own kind of audience, right? And so that's been a really fun process, I think. The kind of involvement I had in the production process for the book has been really great. They've, Random House Kids and my editors have consulted me every step of the way. So when it came time for their designers to design the cover, you know, I saw different comps and I was able to give input um, in terms of choosing the title. the My working title was one that we didn't go with, but it was a whole team effort. And so that's been a really cool thing too. 
especially for traditional publishing, I feel like the chance to work with people who are equal, equally passionate about kid lit is great. I mean, it's such a cool experience. I am getting to work with copy editors and marketing people. Uh, you know, I just met my publicist recently, and they're all people who are experts at what they do and who love working for a kid audience. I mean, they they love my book as much as I do. Well, hopefully, it seems like they do, but um, to have that kind of team has been just, yeah, just a really cool, fun experience, and I don't know if I'd get that publishing it on my own or, or trying to do other things. Something I learned in the process of writing this book is that it's possible to write a book, and I know that sounds kind of weird and sort of cheesy, but you know, this was a big dream of mine to actually write a book, and I just never thought that it could actually be something that I could accomplish. And on top of that, because I've always, it's always been a challenge for me to try and figure out how to do that amidst everyday life. And, you know, we all have our own things, but, and for me personally, it was, it was being a mom and working and trying to balance everything. I just always felt like I can't do this because when am I going to do this? Like, when do you have time to write a book? But you can do it even just a little bit each day and actually come up with something that is solid and that people hopefully want to read. Um, but you just have to keep at it. So, you know, I went through my learning journey of trying to figure out how to write books a long time ago. And I feel like I had a lot of years where it was just ruminating. And finally, I'm able to use these tools that I learned but it's definitely possible. You just have to keep at it and keep working at it. Here is the beginning of the house that Lou built. Chapter one, if people were houses. If people were houses, Lula Selena, my grandmother, would be a hot pink painted lady. One of those fancy San Francisco Victorians tourists love with intricate stained glass that cast rainbows onto the sidewalks She's colorful. Right now, we're strutting around the living room in summery folk dance dresses. Mine's bright yellow. It feels light and airy, and when I'm jumping around in it, I wish I could fly. I spin as fast as I can. The skirt flounces up, and Lola joins me twirling and twirling while Mom takes our picture from the couch. We finish and stand shoulder to shoulder, trying not to wobble. Laughter pours out of us. Ay, naku, Lola says. I haven't danced around this much since I was... Crowned Miss Sampagita in your village for three years in a row, we all know, Mom says, and Lola cracks up. My cousins and I have heard this story a million times. It's one of my favorites. Lola and I put our arms around each other. I'm taller than she is now. I'm only half Filipina, so we don't look exactly alike, but our family says we have the same smile. Definitely the same crazy laugh. I plop down next to Mom out of breath. Lou, we should get you a pretty dress to wear on your birthday, Mom says. Actually, what I think every new 13-year-old needs is a circular saw, I say, even though she'd never go for that. Too dangerous. Nice try, kiddo. Don't you want to wear something beautiful on your day, Anako? Lula says, Anako, my child. Even though she calls all the grandkids that, it still makes me feel special. My birthday's coming up, but I don't care about wearing some silly dress or having a huge sweet 13 like some of the kids at school. There's only one thing I want, my own house. I just have to build it first. The idea started off as a daydream, a dare to myself. What if I made something no other girl has? Because here's the neat part. I own some land, trees, and shrubs and everything. I inherited it from my dad's family after he died, and that's where my house will go. 
I've been planning this for a while, and I'm ready to do something about it. If I keep thinking and brainstorming and watching how-tos instead of doing, it's never going to happen. Lolo, my grandfather, used to say, that's how dreams work. You just have to do them. Okay, scooch over, Lola says, sitting next to us. She starts folding and piling up costumes she sewed for Barrio Fiesta. Barrio Fiesta is a neighborhood celebration. Villages in the Philippines throw them every year. It's our big fundraiser for the Filipino-American Community Senior Center with dizzying rides, tasty food, and all my friends hanging out. The festival ends in a show and my whole family pitches in. This time, Lola's sewing, I'm making sets, and Mom's organizing the rummage sale. I'm dancing, too. We only practice a couple days a week, so that leaves me plenty of building time. Mom tilts her head against mine. She's quiet. What's wrong, my dear Minda? Is this about your job search? Lila asks. I haven't gotten any offers yet. I applied all over the area, Mom says. It's okay, Anak. Try to be patient. And you should feel proud, too. It's not easy to put yourself through school. It's all right to take things slow. My mom's a medical technician, but she just got her nursing degree by going to school at night. Now she's looking for a new job as a nurse and works a lot of overtime to pay student loans and because we're saving up to move out of Lola's house. Mom's face brightens a little. The good news is the hospital I interviewed with in Washington State scheduled a follow-up call. Cross your fingers. Is she serious? I sit up. Are you talking about moving again? Mom smooths my hair. I've been thinking a lot about it, honey, and it's the perfect time for a change. Not that kind of change. I can't imagine anything worse. San Francisco is so expensive. If we lived in Washington, we could find our own place and save up for your college fund. She smiles at me like she hasn't just said the wrong thing. I give her a big smile back. We're not moving. Lola rubs small circles onto mom's shoulders, the way she and mom do with me whenever I'm feeling bad. You'll find a job soon, Anuk, though I cannot imagine you and Lou moving so far from home. Well, something good will come our way, I know it, mom says. She turns to me. Okay, young lady, if you're done parading around like Miss Preteen Sampaguita, then it's bedtime. Last day of seventh grade tomorrow. I lie in bed, staring at glow-in-the-dark stars on the ceiling. I wish I was on my land, looking at real stars where at night they fill the sky. The thought of moving has me wide awake. I can't believe mom would want a job in another state. Most people count sheep to fall asleep. Me? I like to think about houses. It cheers me up. And it's easy because there are hundreds of types of houses in the world. Some I like just for their names. The Barn Dominium, the Geodesic Dome, and the Queenslander. A salt box, a snout house, or a yaodong. Others have fascinating details like the yurt, a round portable tent pulled in carts by yaks, the houseboat, part house and part boat, the mansion. Everybody knows this one. It's what I used to want to live in, but now I think they're obnoxious, too big and glossy, not my style. Then there's the opposite, a tiny house. These houses are garage size small, but they can still have a kitchen and a bathroom and a secret cranny for brainstorming ideas. People all around the world build and live in them. They don't cost as much as a normal house and certainly not as much as a mansion, but the best part? A tiny house fits everything anyone could ever need. A bed, a table and chairs, a toilet, a sink with running water, which a lot of people in the world don't even have. If you think of it that way, a tiny house isn't tiny at all. It's just right. Mom snores loudly from her side of our room while cars zoom down the street. We live in a busy part of the neighborhood where shops and restaurants and gas stations stay open way late. 
Sometimes I can trick myself into thinking traffic sounds like the ocean. Mom and I share a bedroom with twin beds shoved up against opposite walls. It's the same room she shared with her sister, my Auntie Gemma, growing up. Lolo, my grandfather Ernesto, died a few years ago, but I still see him in every part of this place, on the patio where he and I would watch sunsets like movies, a wad of tobacco in his cheek, in the kitchen where he fed me rice and fish, Gamayan style, with his hands, no utensils. He said it made the food taste better. It did. And in this very room at night tucking me in. He'd pull the blanket to my chin, and I'd run my fingers down his gnarled knuckles and listen to stories about his job when he first came to America. He picked crops in fields, his back aching, a straw hat full of holes, the only thing shielding him from the sun beating down. After stories, he'd close my door, but I could still hear Lola in the kitchen washing dishes, even though there's a dishwasher. She'd say, I never needed a dishwasher in the Philippines, did I? Now it's just me, Mom, and Lola. Lola died three years ago, but we first moved in when I was a little kid. Mom had me when she was only 19, a kid herself. At least that's how our family gossips about it. And now here we are, Mom snoring like a chainsaw. Having my own room would be awesome sauce. Mom, I whisper, no answer, she's out. From under the bed, I slip out a flashlight and a long, fat cylinder of paper, my blueprint. It crinkles as I pull off the rubber band and roll the paper open like a giant map. It's soft and thin under my fingers, full of notes and numbers. I shine the light. I wasn't going to start construction until I had all of the materials, but if mom wants to move us away, I might never have the chance to build. Once she has an idea, that's all she can focus on. Me too. Stubbornness is one of the traits Lula says mom and I share. My shop teacher, Mr. Keller, has a quote up in his classroom that I like. Seize the day. That's what I'll do. Lucinda, go to sleep. Mom glances my way before turning over, her back to me like a wall. I shut off the flashlight and bury myself under the covers. When it seems like she's asleep, I aim a bright circle onto my plan. My new house will have a composting toilet and right above the kitchen, a cozy sleeping loft. Giant picture windows will frame redwoods. And anytime I need to get away for peace and quiet, I'll go there. Time to make it real. Seize the day. The Right Process is produced by me, Charlie Jensen, at the UCLA Extension Studio. Audio support and editing were provided by Jamie Moss, Eileen Keegan, and Hannah Sutherland. For more information on the Writers Program, visit writers.uclaextension.edu.